Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda brought to you by New Narrative with me, your host, PJ Thun. I am wearing a black and white batik shirt and sitting in front of a big bookcase full of books. And today we have with us the famous Singaporean dissident, writer and researcher, Roy Neng. But before we get to him, this podcast is brought to you by New Narrative, a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia. And if you'd like to join our movement, go to newnarrative.com slash join. Or if you'd like to donate, go to newnarrative.com slash donate. We need your help to keep our movement sustainable. Okay, so joining us today, Roy Neng, the famous Singaporean dissident. How are you, Roy? Um, I'm good. Um, I'm in Taiwan right now. It's actually quite cold today. Um, I'm happy to be able to uh, speak to you again um, and to you know be connected to Singapore. I have been away for five years after what has happened to me. Um, and it's, it's actually nice to be able to, you know, uh, speak to you and to keep, up, keep updated about what's happening and to maybe share a bit about what's happening with me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what is, what is happening with you, Roy? What's going on with, in your life now? Um, you know, the interesting thing about coming to Taiwan is that I managed to get a researcher job. I, I was, I've always been interested in doing research work. And I think part of writing on my blog in Singapore about the social issues um, was about using that interest in research to dig out things and to try to put things together um, into a picture or a different sort of analysis that is not uh, being discussed at that time. Um, and I think it was difficult being a researcher there because of the con controversies that I faced. Um, and then when I came to Taiwan, I managed to find a job doing research. Uh, so I was doing medical education research and then doing research on sustainability. Um, so I do, you know, it's, it's a nice, it's nice to have this opportunity uh, to do something that uh, aligned my interests. And I'm also doing some bit of, a bit of freelance writing now. So I'm continuing to talk about social issues. Um, I did write about Singapore, but then I'm also writing a lot more about Taiwan and the minimum wage issue here now. So it's, otherwise it's been pretty um, the same. <laughs> but I guess we should uh, get to uh, what we actually uh, set this up to do, which is uh, to promote this book, which I'm holding up here on screen, Ridiculous Untold Tales of Singapore, which is a collection of uh, really ridiculous legal cases involving the Singapore government and activists. Uh, both of us have written for this. Both of us have a chapter in here. I talked about the government coming after new narrative with this nonsense about election advertising, right? Just because we had some posts on Facebook. Uh, but that is nothing compared to what you went through. So if you're willing to do so, would you be willing for our audience who might not have heard some of the details to summarize your case and what you went through with the Singapore government? Oh, okay. Um, well, I was sued by the prime minister and then charged by the government um, and then harassed by the police, uh, in short, um, fired from my job. Yeah, but I just want to add the caveat that, you know, um, I have left Singapore for five years and... I think um, part of me has have been able to leave that political persecution behind. I think what is even though I got sued and it, you know it, feel, it felt like it's it felt like it was really harsh. I think what's also difficult is the very few activists that are left in Singapore and also you know including what you had to go through 
um, it, after I left, I think the kind of harassment that people are facing, the kind of persecution that the government trains on the very few activists that are left, um, not, not using explicit charges, but just harassing. I think that that is another level of threat or discomfort, um, you know, for lack of a better word. And I, I, I don't think that's any lesser. I, I think that's, that's difficult. It causes the same psychological trauma that it had to me. Yeah, so, so, so that, that to me is at least what I think. But, but okay, so what, what I went through for audiences who might not, um, understand, uh, not know what happened, I think I, I started writing a blog in 2012, uh, My Heart Truths, um, and I had been writing at that time on the social issues on Singapore, uh, on the wage, on the wage issue, social protection issue, those are my main concerns because I've always felt that it is necessary for um, society to have the basic protection of uh, citizens in order for them to be able to uh, function adequately so that they can then be happy. <laughs> and you were working for Tan Tok Seng Hospital at the time. Yes. Yeah. As and, as a researcher or. Um, no, I, I was um, mainly doing follow-up for um, patients there, as well as uh, helping to do, at that time, I ran a social marketing campaign at the hospital as well, um, okay. mainly promoting acceptance uh, and understanding towards people living with HIV. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I, well, eventually I wrote an article where um, I discussed about the pension funds and how they are used by the government investment firms and how, so I did a inappropriate comparison, <laughs> which led to the um, prime minister uh, suing me for defamation. Yeah. Um, I think for me though, the, what has, so after I got sued, uh, I was told to apologize and I was told to remove my articles, which I did but I wanted to keep writing because I felt that this was a good opportunity to allow my articles to continue to um, be, be, be read and be seen. So I continued writing on the pension issue. And I think that, um, and I also continued to protest. <laughs> so eventually the government uh, decided to charge me for protesting and the defamation suit also went ahead and the prime minister decided to uh, sue me <laughs> um, after that. And I was also told to leave my job. Um, to me, that's political as well, because when the Ministry of Health, re Health released a, a press statement, they also said that they also alluded to, to the inappropriate behavior uh, as part of the defamation suit. So, yeah, but, but all, all the while, up until the 2015 election, I continued writing, I continued protesting because I felt that if people only knew that they could have better policies in terms of wage policies, social protection policies, um, similar to other advanced countries, uh, if they could have the facts that they would vote a government or a party that would you know, do that for them, that would enact protection policies that would be adequate. So I, I kept I kept going. So there was that there was that rush there to keep writing. Um, but but then eventually when the election happened, um, and, and I, I ran for it and I felt terribly <laughs> um, I ran against the Prime Minister's constitu constituency and then I only got 20%, I think the lowest 
um, winning margin at that point. Um, and that, that was when that hope, uh, that loss of hope came. And that was when that, you know, that disempowerment, that, that feeling that I wasn't, that, that what, what have I been doing all this while, you know? Um, so I think to some, yeah, to, to, to some activists, they actually said, you know, you, you ran into this political persecution so quickly. And then, so it, it does cause you to suddenly face everything head on. So they, they felt that when I had to suddenly exit and go to Taiwan, they also felt that it was understandable. I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, but that, that was a process to me, you know, being really excited with all that and then feeling all the loss of hope, um, collapsing on that loss of hope, becoming depressed. And then having to leave to Taiwan to you know come to terms with what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Um, and I, I think there's some interesting things there that I want to pick up on. The first is the the court case, because you weren't actually allowed to to defend yourself, right? If I remember correctly, there was a, you submitted a reasoned argument, and it was it was just dismissed, something like that. Oh, yes. Sorry. Please ask me about the details because I don't fully... Um, so uh, I had to submit an affidavit at one point to try to argue my case before the judgment was made. So I, the, the, the article that I was sued for, um, the basis of the argument uh, was that the pension funds in Singapore were being invested in uh, the government investment firms. And at that time, based on the information available, on the government websites um, before they were changed. Um, the, the, the Singapore Central Provident Funds, CPF, uh, pension funds, are invested in the GIC and Tamasic Holdings. They have since said that the CPF is not invested in the Tamasic Holdings. Um, and they've always uh, repeated that uh, it, is, it is not directly in, invested in the GIC, that uh, the CPF funds are invested in the bonds and then the reserves and then the GIC so that there's no connection. Well, of course, you could make that argument, but it is it is a bit unethical, I would say, to make that kind of argument when the pension funds are inadequate, when they are making only 2.5 to 4% basic interest and up to 6% only on a small amount of the funds. Um, and there are still a proportion of Singaporeans who are not able to retire um, based on the latest data provided by the government. The CPF only pays out, um, I think, a median payout of, if I'm not wrong, about five or six hundred, and that is still um, a median payout for those who take them uh, CPF out above sixty-five. Um, per month? Yeah, per month. Yeah, I do. Should I try to check the exact amount? So it's. Uh, I it, think no, it's, no, it's okay. We we will just assume we don't have the exact numbers. We're more interested in in your case. Uh, and oh, the government, you know, changes these numbers all the time. Uh, as an academic, you know, we, we see this a lot where you do research, the government doesn't like it, they will then take down the numbers from their website, they will amend, you know, or put up a new set of numbers that alters the meaning of the first set of numbers and then tell you, oh, sorry, clearly, uh, you know, you were, your research is wrong and actually everything's fine. So, you know, access to information is a huge problem in Singapore. Access to accurate numbers. I've made the point in one of my videos that we simply 
do not have independently verifiable numbers about a lot of things that Singapore does. We can only use government numbers and the government just, we have to accept those numbers on faith, right? And then the government will give those numbers to like the World Bank or the UN or IMF or whatever, and then cite those other authorities when actually those numbers come from the Singapore government. So it's very difficult to do any sort of research on Singapore with independently ver without with you know without independent ver ver independently verifiable numbers. Yeah. Um, but I think what what I'm 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 asking is the um, is the case. It feels like that there was a miscarriage of justice because you submitted this affidavit, but you weren't given the chance to defend yourself. You you the case was just the the justice just ruled in favor of the prime minister. Yeah, so so I put the same information into that article. Um, I think to justify that, um, my article was focused on that. I also so in in court after that, I repeatedly said that I have no intention of defaming the prime minister, um, and that I was always focused on that comparison. So I was, I I think part of the reason why I included the affidavit because I wanted people to know that that was the main judge. Uh, Main, main issue that I was making uh, about how the pension funds are invested. And I think the definition of law in Singapore is very specific though. Um, I think it was, and, and if you look at the uh, parts where I was sued for, they were not in relation to the rest of the article that touched on the pension fund issue. It was very much in relation to the uh, comparison that I did uh, outside of this that they felt was the issue. And, that, that was what eventually had to be challenged and caught. So to the judge, the rest of the article that is more focused on this issue therefore becomes irrelevant. Um, I think- right, I see. The, yeah, I think yeah. that we, we it's, it's also well understood that defamation laws in Singapore are written and interpreted in a way which allows any sort of you know, even potential harm to be regarded as harm. And, and that's my layman, I'm not a lawyer. But I think that given how defamation laws in Singapore have been used over the decades to, um, you know, silence and intimidate activists and people who disagree with the government, I, I, I don't think anyone would be very surprised. Um, and I don't think it'd be inaccurate to say that um, in general, laws written by the PAP tend to favor the PAP uh, they're the ones who write the laws. The courts uh, don't have the ability to decide whether laws are ethical or moral. They simply enforce the laws. And that's a big part of the, the problem, the setup in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, can I then ask, okay, so you submit this, this affidavit, which lays out your argument, showing that actually your argument is about these facts and they dismiss it because it's irrelevant, because strictly under the law, you know, it's it's that's it's actually the way the law is written it's irrelevant so then we go to the hearing for the damages and you get to cross-examine Lee Sen Long for six hours yeah right and you actually listed out all the facts that you put in your article and asked them whether they were inaccurate and he actually said no they're not inaccurate they're factually correct um yeah let me try to remember Yes, I, I think some of the questions I asked at that point was, um, are you the prime minister and are you the head of the GIC? So is that a fact? Because I had to, 
that, that specific portion where I was sued for, there was some information about these. So I had to clarify that all that I mentioned, how the CPF is invested in the JIC, that's a fact, um, you know, by way of that routing, um, that his position in the JIC. So, so, so yeah, all, all that aside from a particular, just a particular two word phrase um, uh, was actually the key issue. Um, and the rest of the statements were factual. Yes, I, I did take him through that. How do you know that? <laughs> it's in the book. Oh, okay. You, you wrote the article <laughs> right here. I forgot. I forgot I wrote about that. Yeah. So <laughs> actually, it was, it was very interesting because the lawyer who attended the court case said that when he heard the argument I made in court, if he was a judge, he would have dismissed the case because he thought that I have uh, made quite a strong case. So um, I think I think you're right because at least I was able to point out that you know that that the, the facts of how the CPF works are the facts that um, that are, are the facts um, and to me that that's fine because if I have to personally face the defamation suit it's fine but at least I managed to it, one thing was right after I was sued um, before I was sued, the government has never publicly said that the CPF is invested in the JIC, even by any way of routing. I think um, even Lee Kuan Yew has had tried to you know, play with his words when he said that the CPF is not invested in the JIC, that there's no direct relationship. That, that's what he said. Um, but right after I was sued, a month later, the Ministry of Manpower decided to release an article in the Business Times that was carried in the Business Times that put out this link. And that was the first time it was uh, available for, for many years. And to me, that was a, at least a vindication for me at that point that the information that I've, I have been trying to put out has finally been released. I feel though that because there is a lack of discussion nowadays on the issue, I think the government is trying to reshape the conversation and the narrative again. Uh, for, for, for me, I think there's a blurring of the lines again that it makes it very difficult. So they are, they keep emphasizing about how there's no connection between the JIC and Tomasi, uh, CPF and uh, GIC. And I think if you keep making that connection, people might lose the awareness that the CPF has funds going in and that the GIC to some extent, a responsible government or an ethical government should make the JIC accountable for the funds from the CPF. And I think that conversation is starting to get missing then. Yeah, I mean, it's typical PAP, right? Because they will say things which are technically correct, but not necessarily ethically, morally, you know, substantively correct. It's always about the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. And that's always been their approach, this very legalistic way of looking at things. But then it's coming to, to also bite them in the ass because then they wonder why Singaporeans, you know, behave in ways where we don't have uh, a sort of, uh, you know, coherent community spirit where we have become so legalistic, where we, we are, have become so paranoid, we have become so exploitative. Well, it's because the government does that to yeah. us. It sets the example that, you know, the, the behavior that, uh, allows you to succeed in Singapore is one where you're constantly looking at for loopholes about how to screw over other people, right? The Prime Minister says, if uh, I don't eat someone else's lunch, he's going to eat my lunch. 
you know, and then they lament, oh, why Singaporeans got no kampong spirit, no esprit de corps, right? Why we're always so exploitative, we're also focused on money, on numbers, right? Well, the government does that, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So um, what happened to you afterwards? This, this actually isn't in your book, but you paid a very significant, you know, social emotional right mental cost for all this would you be willing to tell us about what happened afterwards i i think the main thing um like i said just now was after the um 2015 election it's so long ago um prior to that i think part of me was i'm, I'm never a legal person so when i when i saw the legal suit or the first time the um when i received the legal suit it was at work on my work email, I was eating breakfast. <laughs> so when I saw when I saw the email, I was like, "This name looks very familiar. Is it from the government?" <laughs> so I had to finish my breakfast first because I bought my breakfast. So I decided to, you know, open the email after that, and I saw that email. So so anyway, um, you know, throughout throughout that period, I think, I think part of me was naive. So early on, because of that, um naivety and understanding what was happening to me. There was a bit of protection there. Um, I didn't take the legal suit as seriously. I left it to the lawyers to deal with. Um, I was only focused on trying to talk about the CPF, trying to get information out. I was thinking that, okay, now that it's out, people are aware. You, you can see that there's a segment of the people who are angry about the issue because, because they're willing to donate. They're willing to come up to protest. Um, and then I, I think a part of me had that hope that if I kept speaking up, that we could try to maybe change things. Um, so when they decided to charge me at a protest, um, that changed the dynamic a, a bit. Uh, I think that was maybe the first realization that I realized that people are willing to find certain reasons to withdraw their support if they can, I, I don't blame people for doing that, but I, I understand how that psyche works because in an authoritarian regime, wanting to support someone who speaks up, even just supporting takes a lot of um, courage because of the fear that it has on you that just supporting an opposition, an activist can put risk to your job. And if that, that might then risk your pension, might risk your housing, might be being able to pay for housing, for example. I think there's a lot of conflation on that attitude. So then when I was charged for that protest, I saw the sudden withdrawal of support. Um, and that gave me a loss of hope for a bit. Um, but I continued because you know part of it was exciting. If we can change things, we might be able to you know succeed in having new policies and that, that was that drive there. So that happened all the way up to the election um, in 2015. And that was that was that part of that hope um, that pushed me to run for election, knowing that you know there's a very little chance that so that that's you know part of that hope there and part of that re reality balancing itself out. I think the reality reality really hit when I, we were counting the votes and uh, at the places that um, we went. Well, you know, we only had 20%, 30% at most at all the places. And uh, I quickly, it quickly sank in that, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to win. And that's fine. We're not going to win. 
I was actually fine for a bit um, and I decided to move on. Um, but then I started applying for jobs because now that, um, you know, the whole fight is over, uh, at least um, at a point now that you have to uh, move on to look for a job because you need to sustain yourself. Now that you have to confront reality because there's not going to be a change. Um, I realized that it's actually very difficult because uh, people don't respond to my resumes. I actually managed to sneak in an interview because there was a retail company that allows you to apply for uh, interviews by SMS. So I sent an SMS. They didn't know it was me. So when I went, I think they were like, what the? <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they had no choice, right? So I didn't get it, obviously. <laughs> but that, that, that was just part of that string of interviews that um, I, I couldn't get. Uh, and and that, that was when another layer of reality hit. I'm not going to look for a job. If I keep speaking out, uh, what am I going to do? Um, there was still that reluctance to move overseas because of my family, my parents. Um, part of me was thinking, should I apply for asylum? There was, I was not ready to apply for asylum. Um, I wanted to also prove that I'm able to find a job to move out. I think that was part of that, proving to myself. But it was increasingly difficult because not, not speaking out because I wanted to, you know, look for a job to fit, fit back in. Um, I think it created a bit of fear in me. And I started realizing, I started understanding the fear that many people have when it comes to speaking out because of the opportunities you might lose. I started self-censoring myself. I, I started acknowledging that process happening in me. Um, you know, it was very interesting. I, I see that and then I'm also observing myself and being intrigued by that process. But at the same time, going through that process of depression where I know I can't look for a job, where I'm slowly feeling so disempowered, so, so hopeless that um, I also see myself fall into a sense of helplessness, of not knowing how to respond. It also it even became a challenge to write cover letters, uh, to look for jobs, because how do you frame yourself in a positive way? Um, and I had, a, I had an interview for Australia uh, at that time, finally. And I felt that pressure to speak proper English, to, to try to frame myself in such a proper way because I was so desperate to get a job, to be able to move out. You know, so that, that was a few months. Uh, that was, I think, about maybe May or June after, after the election. So there was more than half a year. So it was a whole process of accepting that loss, um, going into that process of acceptance that maybe I should tone down. And then I think going through that depression, learning to eventually realize that I should pick myself up, but still having that difficulty. And eventually it was really, thankfully I found a job in Taiwan and I was able to move away. I don't think if I had stayed in Singapore that I would be able to relieve myself of all that pressure that was building up. Um, I think it was because I was in Taiwan that I was able to finally go through that process of you know, letting go of all that fear, letting go of that depression and then trying to work my way back up towards being healthy again. Mm, yeah, it, it was so bad that before I left Taiwan, I was, before I left for Taiwan, I was so afraid I would lose my job that somehow the, the, the company would uh, cancel my visa. 
I was so afraid that I would not perform well in my first month and I would be fired. Um, you know, there was all that happening because of that fear um, of what had happened to me. I even consulted an activist who was overseas at the time and I was telling him about all these fears I had. I wanted to know if they were normal. Thankfully, he experienced the same things. He experienced the same thing where, you know, he felt that he might, you, you want to protect that job, you want to protect that stability. Um, and it, it took really a year or two. Um, so even when I was in Taiwan, there was that fear that, you know, someone might be following me. Um, even going online, there was that difficulty. I, I don't think I was writing a lot until maybe a year or two in after Taiwan that I began to be more comfortable writing. Um, there was always that, that struggle there, that fear. Um, there also an activist came from uh, Singapore and then she wanted to speak to me and then she said that she could see some semblance of PSD, you know, uh, post-traumatic disorder. I didn't recognize it because I think I was, I, I think perhaps a part of me was trying to cope and to tell myself that I'm normal. Um, I'm not normal in the sense that I'm able to function adequately while trying to readjust to the whole environment. So, and so I don't think I'm always aware to that whole process of what's happening. And, and I think it's important for people to know this because um, just because you're an activist, just because you look like you are brave enough to go out to speak, I think people attach the idea that, you know, they are brave because they are the only ones willing to speak up. But there's a lot of trauma that goes through what you have to face. Um, and I, I do not know how it feels like for people who actually have to go to jail. Recently, there was a Taiwanese who just got released from jail after five years uh, from China, um, you know, because they uh, said that he was trying to spread um, something like spread democracy in China. And he was still able to say that he was doing the right thing. And that was what kept him upbeat. And I'm thinking to myself, um, the kind of persecution that, you know, we are facing in Singapore, it already creates that kind of traumatic stress. And what is it like for people who have to go to jail, who have to be tortured in jail? Like kind of, or for, or for people in the 1980s, you know, the kind of torture that they had to go through under, um, you know, so on, etc. What, what was it like? And, and then, and then you, you understand that if there are traumatic experiences that creates long-lasting psychological difficulties, it is normal. Um, and, and then that's, that's part of the society we create where there are Singaporeans who either speak up or who don't, who keep quiet, who keep silent, who self-censor. You are creating layers of different layers of psychological coping mechanisms and people are interacting with one another in society, coming up with decisions, um, debating issues, there's the anger, fear, and we are not functioning in an optimal way because of all the mm. underlying psychological and emotional um, temperaments that we have. I, I, that's, I think that's, that's a really a interesting point you're making. Yeah. You know, that somehow like emotionally, because of all this fear, the oppression that we experience, that we also see other activists, activists experience, but collectively that Singaporeans experience that we're all damaged and unable to function properly as human beings and that then deeply 
it it distorts our society, right? Yeah. It it means that we can't live normal, happy, healthy lives, but also we can't make good decisions. We can't properly care for each other. And, and then what does that mean for us collectively as a, as a nation, as a country, as a society where with all this damage, it just feeds on itself and just makes things worse? I think that's actually a very insightful point that collectively... Singaporeans, there's a lot of trauma that we need to process that just we aren't allowed to process. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that's, you know, as, as you're talking, and then I'm thinking too that there are, I also see a lot more young people speaking out. Um, and then you, I see some of my peers in the past who are a bit quiet who are also speaking up. Um, so it's, it's always that I, I, I think you might see that too. It's, it's a bit of a struggle. I think some people, are willing to speak up because they might not know the historical baggage like I did when I was in before I was sued. And there might be a part of it might be naive being naive. A part of it is regardless of what happened, we are in the modern society where there's free speech and uh, globally and where there's this democrat uh, democratic movement towards um, a more progressive kind of ideology that some people are trying to bring in and that propels them. And then and then, but then there are some people who are trying to speak up. And then what if one day you find out that speaking up doesn't make change? And then how does that affect you cognitively? Um, you know, and that um, I think also there's a lot of issues about how there's foreign interference and disinformation and people falling for conspiracy theories. And you, I don't completely blame them for doing it because mm -hmm. when you have psycho psychological traumas and you have different coping mechanisms, you have different ways of looking at things using fear, using anger. You are going to fall for disinformation and conspiracies. You are going to not trust the government. And the government has to accept that process. If the country becomes unstable, you are part of that process that creating created the instability, the, the long-term psychological trauma, the long-term inability to cognitively find dissonance in society. And, and for me, at least, it took about two years or so, uh, or three years, one day in Taiwan, I was able to tell myself, I think I'm finally able to think straight. <laughs> you know, it feels like I'm finally able to not allow, even, even when I was willing to speak up, I think part of me was encumbered by that idea that there's fear. I think part of me was also influenced by that, and especially after the election. And I only when I finally came to Taiwan was I able to tell myself maybe maybe I'm able to think straight now and that, that that affects society and I don't think we have a study to be able to do that because of the complexities of the yeah. different layers. Well we know that uh, you know Singapore has a very high rate of mental health issues but again this information is very hard to come by and very hard to verify so we don't know exactly but we have heard um, and, you know, anecdotally during the pandemic, we saw a lot of strange cases. Earlier this year, there's been so many random knife and parang attacks and things like that, you know, and it's very scary um, how everyone just seems at the end of their tether, whether it's on the verge of anger, on the verge of despair, you know, but collectively, we all feel so exhausted and angry and helpless. Um, and yeah, it is, it is very worrying, yeah. uh, but I am so glad that you are 
better, that you're doing well, that you found a place for yourself, you know, um, not just physically, but that you have found meaning and that you found connection in Taiwan. So I guess last question, do you ever think you'll come home and, you know, whether or not you do, what, would you, what are your hopes and dreams for Singapore? I'm not sure if I'm going to come back. I've got no plans. Um, I've actually not been back to Singapore for more than five years. Uh, I've also gotten my permanent residency here. Um, I, I think part of it is because there's that realization that it's always going to be difficult to look for a job for some time to come, especially when the government doesn't change this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do miss my family. Yeah. Um, have they been to visit you in Taiwan? Have they, they, they have, to? but the pandemic has made it yeah. difficult. Yeah, so Taiwan hasn't allowed foreigners in until recently, uh, where you can apply for family members to come. I do hope to be able to make a trip, at least a Singapore, just a short trip. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think in the end, I, you know, I, I, Singapore has so much potential. It's a relatively wealthy country. Um, many people are relatively wealthy. There are a lot of low income um, as well. But it's just that Singapore has so much potential um, because of the infrastructure that's already there. Um, if only, it, I understand the difficulty because when a country is, or society is really unequal, you know, it makes it difficult for people to empathize with one another because it is, it's just the way people are. They become more selfish. They become more protective of themselves. And that, that's all normal. Um, so it, it takes the leadership or at least enlightened as part of society to understand that if we decide to, you know, adopt different policies, uh, Singapore has the infrastructure capacity to ensure that livelihoods can be uplifted and people can start to go into a mode where they can feel more at ease, more satisfied, more happy, more balanced. And Singapore can, you know, develop towards a different kind of society. And Singapore can be an example of that uh, in Asia and, and for the region. And we do not have to be in a competitive, competitive state with the region. We can work with the more democratic countries in Southeast Asia to try to, you know, build up more hopeful, a more hopeful state where um, ASEAN can be a positive example and, and there's all this potential. Um, and, and then you, you, it's just very sad that the government doesn't want to do this out of fear, out of protection for their own power or you know, other interests. Um, I, I, I think that with each leadership power, it, you know, it increases their burden, but it also reduces part of the burden that they are attached to the previous leadership. Yes and no. I think you would have better insights into this. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a possibility for change. I mean, I, I want to believe that that's possible only because you want to, you want to believe that the potential can be achieved. And that, that's, that's, that's just what I, I mean, that's, that's why I write on my blog because I want to be happy for myself. <laughs> And I realized that if policies change, I can be happy because everyone else is happy if the society is at ease and you know, at peace with one another. And that, that, that is uh, what I've always wanted. Except that when I tell journalists this, they always write this out because it talks about happiness. 
<laughs> Who talks about, you know? <laughs> Everyone deserves to be happy. I think we all have a right to be happy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, what's wrong with that? You know, ultimately, what's wrong with a goal where everyone everywhere is happy? I think yeah. that's great. And the Taiwanese government aren't like accusing you of being a foreign influence or something like that? No, um, I think the government has said before that they do want to protect, I mean, Taiwan is a democracy and they would protect the freedom of right to, uh, freedom of speech to uh, speak up to rights. Um, in fact, I think uh, there was news today that more than 20 independent uh, international, uh, sorry, international outlets have moved to Taiwan um, after, so they have left Hong Kong to come to Taiwan. So it's a testament to the free space that you have in Taiwan to be able to speak up. I think the administrative struggles of basing in Taiwan is another issue, but at least that there is that space there's that respect for this cause. And in some aspects where there is maturity in that discussion in Taiwan, um, you can see quite healthy debate. Some issues though, like the death penalty, I think it is still a struggle to be able to debate on that in Taiwan because um, I think the way human rights work in Taiwan is that there are some parts that are evolving a lot quicker and some parts like labor rights, migrant rights, and the death penalty where that conversation has not evolved as fast. So it's, it's actually very interesting coming from Singapore where um, you are not, um, you're told not to speak up. And so when issues and debates happen, they happen within small groups that are just pushing that issue. But then you come to Taiwan and you realize that that kind of democratic movement, that kind of human rights debate, they are happening on happening on different levels. Um, and and you, you see the evolution, you're part of the evolution and you understand how Singapore could be if it starts democratizing and um, there are different um, competitive narratives to how, how, how that uh, democracy can push different ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Taiwan, I think it, it it contradicts two important arguments of the PAP why they clamp down. The first is that freedom of speech or democracy is not Asian somehow, right? It's not for us in the East. Uh, and the second is that freedom of speech and democracy would somehow lead to the country fracturing. It would lead to ethnic strife or religious strife or you know, some sort of vague idea of everything falling apart with our firm authoritarian hand. So in your experience, Taiwan, you know, how does it, how does it uh, respond to these two arguments of the PAP? I, I think that's exactly it. Um, I was thinking, because I've been writing about all these wage issues, so I do think to myself, does the Taiwanese government read my articles? Um, I understand from uh, someone else that the government uh, knows of the articles, I have also briefly spoken to some of the people in government uh, when I attend protests where the government um, representatives from the government and the ruling party attends as well because they do speak out in protests as part of their um, right to participate in protests and as uh, knowing that protests is part of democracy. Um, and a lot of the people from the ruling party also emerged from protests as well. So it's part of that um, organic process for them. 
Um, but I think the other thing is, I also realized that because I write on the minimum wage issue, it's not something that the government in Taiwan likes to touch on too much. I think partly because of the pressure that they may face from uh, businesses and perhaps partly in part of due to the funding that are coming from businesses. And, but I'm still able to write. They are not going to clamp down or they are not going to stop me from writing. Um, though they do use some similar tactics in terms of when I was writing on uh, article on civil servant salary, I found there's no public uh, data on the average salary, but I found the data from, I think, 2006 and seven. So after I wrote about it, the document was removed. But then I was not, I think in part because it might be an old document or in part because it, there might be other data that contradicts it, I'm not sure. But the government isn't going to say they are going to clamp down on you. So at least the government allows that healthy debate. Whether they respond to what you write, that's another matter. And then to me, the Singapore, uh, the Taiwan economic uh, development is not that different from Singapore's economic development. So when you look at how Taiwan does it, you think to yourself that the Singapore government can allow free speech as well, right? Uh, whether they want to acknowledge it, what you write, they can do the same thing as Taiwan, you know. Um, but I think, and it's not, it's not that, it's not that uh, Taiwan's government is. How should I say? The, the, the articles I'm writing, uh, a lot of it tries to push for uh, greater labor rights, um, more income inequality. Um, and Taiwan also faces similar challenges where it is actually very unequal um, compared to advanced, advanced countries. Uh, it is one, one of the more unequal countries. Um, of course, there are more unequal countries like the US, UK, Singapore. Um, so there are challenges in that when you're writing all this, the government does not want to tackle these issues yet because it is difficult to tackle them. So, so you see that the government has the same agendas in, in that sense, where they are influenced by businesses, where they are resistant towards changing some policies. But in terms of how they allow you to speak up or how they respond to it is different. Um, so, so just looking at Taiwan, you realize that Singapore can do the same. It's just a matter of changing that perspective and not being scared that such conversations will, um, will make it unstable. Um, of course, it might put you out of power because if you are not responsive, a more sophisticated population might want to push you out. But then how do you then evolve with that? I mean, I'm sure the current administration and government, they are not part of you know, the older generation or, um, or might not be connected to, explicitly connected to certain entities. And there might be some space there to understand that wanting to preserve your power requires you to also move towards some progressivity. Um, progressivity, you know. So how do you evolve with the understanding, knowing that there are countries like Japan, Korea, um, Taiwan, that have similar histories to some extent, uh, you know, and culture are able to do it. How do you how do you try to match that? Yeah, that that's that's at least what I'm seeing from Taiwan and how I think Singapore can replicate part of it, but they're not doing it, and I think it's just such a massive pity because I see the potential that Singapore has. Yeah. Right. Let me 
let me give one or two obvious well okay so one one thing that people might say is well you know singapore needs to be authoritarian because we're surrounded by enemies but of course taiwan is surrounded by maybe the most dangerous country i mean it's not surrounded it's next to and china you know has quite openly stated its desire to conquer reconquer taiwan reunify um and um and and yet taiwan can be a, a free democracy with freedom of speech and expression uh, but what another counter argument might be, oh, hey, Taiwan is all Chinese, so it doesn't have this religious or ethnic issue. Um, but what is, so what is that like? Because I know there is a significant uh, sort of, uh, what's the right word, uh, you know, native population in Taiwan, and there's tensions with the Han Chinese. So is there, does that freedom expression impact both sides? Does it enhance that that dialogue? Does it make it more difficult to resolve issues? What's your experience? Mm, I think it might be easier coming from my perspective as a foreigner, mm -hmm. um, rather than, um, I think what's interesting for me over the last few years is when I first came to Taiwan, um, the government, that there was just a transition of the government towards the current uh, DPP ruling party and they are more willing to accept foreigners in part because they realize that uh, they need more foreigners to help um, fill certain positions. Um, so their policies are somewhat more liberal in that extent when it comes to foreigners. Um, but you also see a similar reaction from the population where they are trying to negotiate um, uh, with understanding that there are more foreigners coming. Um, and then at the same time, due to the pressure from China, you are also seeing how people are becoming a bit more defensive out of that fear. I, I, I think it's a bit complicated. Um, at least the way I understand it is the Taiwan government is being more assertive. At the same time, the Chinese government is being more assertive. And Taiwanese realize that they no longer need to be uh, feel disempowered or feel marginalized, they can feel empowered uh, because the government is taking the lead. But how do you how do you work towards that empowerment while the, the basis of where the empowerment is arising from is a history of feeling oppressed, a, a, a history of feeling that you are attacked from China, a feeling of that vulnerability. And then from that layer, you have to have the empowerment. And it's, it's um, I think it's a, it's, it's a struggle of how people are trying to make sense of feeling disempowered and then trying to regain that control at the same time. And then you, you see how that uh, affects how they respond to people. Because then that sense of nationality, that sense of me being a Taiwanese and asserting the identity becomes stronger. And yet at the same time, you have to negotiate with foreigners to come in um, and you have to assert, assert that identity. I think it's a bit like, it's a different case for Singaporeans. Mm -hmm. For Singaporeans, when there was an influx of migrants, I think people feel that it took away their economic opportunities. Um, it, of course, the, the main issue here is that the government has not enacted proper policies to ensure proper 
uh, wage protection and labor protection for both uh, citizens and migrants. Yes. But because there was no um, equal protection or for everyone, it created that feeling that Singaporeans are not being protected. It created that sense of nationalism. It created that sense that Singaporeans have to oppose the foreigner um, as a reaction to protecting themselves. You see something like that happening in Taiwan for different reasons. Um, because of that um, you know, attack from, from, uh, from China, from the threat from China. I think what, what therefore I sense here is um, you, that conversation is going. The, the media does respond to that. So if foreigners on Twitter, for example, they speak out about how they are misrepresented or it, it does get reported. So this goes up, that conversation can be had. It's not something that is controlled or something that's that's limited. But what's interesting too is how then do we talk about the underlying issues that um, cause people to react? I think that's something that is not being discussed, not understood, not acknowledged because it's such a new issue. I think for me, that, that could be the similarities I see uh, when I was in Singapore and when I'm here now. How, how do we see an issue arising, acknowledge it as fast as we can, and then look at what the underlying drivers are to try to address them and to resolve them. Um, I, I mean, as a, someone who looks at society, this is what I, I, I like to look at. And, and when I see that's not being responded, then, then it means that the conversation that goes on will be a bit more on the surface level before it's finally addressed. And that means that sometimes uh, discriminatory discussions or um, defensive rhetoric can be pushed before it's um, managed, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Singapore, everything's so, it feels so brittle, you know, that everything yeah. is so defensive, the government's so defensive, everything is, uh, is somehow dangerous. Any sort of discussion that disagrees with them is, is a threat. And I'm, it's just very refreshing to hear to hear you know you describe Taiwan and and your experience there. Um, I guess to be fair though, is there anything now that you've been in Taiwan that you think Singapore actually does better, or that you know we should be really proud of from your perspective? Mm, I I said just now that um, Singapore and Taiwan operates on a very similar economic model. Um, I realized, so before I came to Taiwan, um, I actually did some research. So I saw that Taiwan has the national health insurance, Taiwan has unemployment benefits, Taiwan has pension scheme, um, and the coverage of the uh, unemployment benefits was 60% of uh, the previous uh, employment income. So before I came, I was thinking to myself, look, Taiwan has good social protection, Singapore doesn't. So I was a lot more... Um, a lot more um, happy about Taiwan having such a system. Coming to Taiwan allows me to have a more nuanced perspective of mm -hmm. such comparison. Um, just because a country has social protection benefits doesn't mean that um, the labor protections are good. Um, coming here, I realized that uh, there are similarly poor labor protections when it comes to wages, uh, when it comes to the number of annual leave or holidays that um, workers have access to. So both Singapore and uh, Taiwan actually have one of the poorest, uh, lowest number of annual leave and uh, holidays among the advanced countries. Um, 
And even though Taiwan has unemployment benefits of 60% of the previous wage, only about um, 10 odd percent of the unemployed have access to the um, unemployment benefits. So that's a huge proportion. Oh, why, why is that? Why can't they access unemployment I, benefits? I, if I'm not wrong, um, I spoke to someone who had experience accessing unemployment benefits. Um, her point of view was that it's difficult to assess because when you are um, let go off from your job, you need to be able to, I, I don't have the exact terminology and the exact, but you need to be um, let go off. You cannot resign, for example. Um, right. I, I'm not sure the complexities, so I might be a bit uh, wrong here. Yeah, I, can, I can also imagine scenarios where you have to prove your salary through how much tax you pay and things like that. And then in Taiwan, I, I imagine there's probably a significant informal economy. So people who work in the cash economy, you know, probably unable to access benefits. Those, I think those are common problems around yeah. the world. It's also tricky because um, you have to, so the technique that the person told me was that you cannot apply for unemployment benefits at the end of six months. You have to make sure that it doesn't lapse and then you're able to extend it mm -hmm. <laughs> because once it lapses, it becomes a bit more complicated. So I think it's something with the legalities of the systems that I actually have not um, right. explored. Yeah. But, but then it, it helps me understand that Taiwan and Singapore has actually very similar economic systems. The only difference is one is a democracy, the other is not. And you're able to speak up and you're not persecuted. The government might ignore you, but there's that space there. It allows that conversation to grow up. Some people might hear it. Some people might allow that discussion to be taken on. Um, so so that, that's the difference. But so just comparing the two economies being, I think, because if you look at other advanced countries, uh, most of the advanced, advanced countries, uh, including South Korea, they take a wage-led model, um, especially if you just compare Taiwan with other emerging economies in Eastern Europe, their wage increases are one of the fastest. So, so Taiwan and Singapore are unique and uh, together with the United States and I think perhaps Israel, they tend to depress their wages as a way to um, as a way to thinking that this will help grow profits. I think the problem though, when Taiwan adopts such a model is at least from my perspective, Singapore pursues uh, finance uh, industry, which allows wages at a certain extreme to be pulled out. It therefore distorts the whole model where there are a huge pool of low-wage workers and a huge pool of high-wage workers and it pulls up wages in between. For Taiwan, I think the problem is because it relies on being a manufacturing hub um, and it's therefore low cost. It, there is no high wage sector pressure that pulls up that, um, the wages and wages therefore are sustained at a low wage, uh, low wage uh, manner. And, and so even as Taiwan tries to adopt a model that US and Singapore is doing, it has not been able to uplift the economy um, it has not been able to use inequality to pull out the economy. It's, it's a bad, uh, bad thing to do to use inequality to pull out the economy, but it, it has stayed at, a, I think, a stagnant, stagnant um, mode. So this is not to say that Singapore is a, a good model to follow. What I, what I at least think that 
So Taiwan has some problems in terms of its low wage situation that's very similar to Singapore. Um, and Taiwan's housing prices, uh, together with Korea, uh, Japan, are one of the highest in the world. Um, and how, yeah, paying for housing is something that's actually um, quite, it's also a habit that is very similar to Singapore where you feel that you have to buy a home in order to um, be able to get married and move out. So that's also something that's happening. Of course, there are a lot of Taiwanese where their families have homes. So if you are um, not, if you're lucky enough, you are actually able to perhaps inherit a home. But if you're not, uh, housing prices compared to wages are uh, one of the highest. Uh, and it, it's, it's a huge burden. Uh, normally as well, absolute, in terms of absolute um, amount, it's also one of the highest. Um, so what I think Singapore has done comparatively well, not, not absolutely well, <laughs> is that in terms of the progressive wage model, uh, the government initially, when they implemented uh, wages for the low income, it was very low and increments all the way up until last year was very low. I think what has pushed them to think differently could be that the pandemic made them realize that they cannot uh, rely on the excess amount of low wage workers. They have to try to look at increasing wages for the low wage workers. Um, I think part of that I am assuming that part of that is that if low-wage workers are too lowly paid, that it will create a burden for the system if they cannot try to uh, try to meet the needs of the system, try to pay for certain necessities. I'm assuming that this could be some of the mindset that's going on. Um, so the government has, up until 2028, increased the progressive wage model to about 2007 Singapore dollars. So this is good. But what is bad is that uh, 2007 is actually what is needed today based on uh, some uh, calculations done by the academics uh, who have been studying the living wage. What's yeah. enough.sg, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so if we are looking at 2028, what we might need is actually 3,005 mm. or 3,008 uh, as a minimum salary. Um, so, but then when you look at Taiwan, the government doesn't have that same push, the wages are low, but they do not have the same realization that they need to increase wages. The same way uh, Singapore finally awoken to the problem. <laughs> I think part of the problem was because Taiwan managed the COVID-19 pandemic too well at the start. It did not create a disruption that forced the business owners and the government to relook at why the economy uh, such a low wage and unequal economy can be a problem the same way that it has forced the government to, in Singapore to look at the problem. Um, or, or another thing that, you know, just looking, just comparing Taiwan and Singapore, I'm not saying Singapore is doing a good job because housing prices are high in Singapore, even when you look at HDB flats. Um, but then when I come to Taiwan and housing prices are significantly much higher, just um, so the, the house I'm staying in right now, if you are to buy a house like that, it could cost you 800,000 Singapore dollars or a million Singapore dollars. And this could be something that's considered normal for you to average for you to pay. Um, for Singapore, average housing, public housing prices could be about 400, 500,000. That's, that's actually high when you compare with other advanced countries, um, especially when it comes to public housing, especially when it comes to a house where you only have a 99-year lease, especially when you do not own the land. All this means that the housing prices are high. 
Um, but comparing two situations where they are equally bad, <laughs> you realize that the government in Singapore, they try to at least uh, control the prices every few years because they know the risk that it can do to their power and instability. The Taiwanese government has not realized that. <laughs> um, and I expect a housing bubble to happen at some point. Um, but then they are able to somehow manage it. So having said that, it's not that the Singapore model is good. It just, it just means that they know how to play with that risk that mm. they, you know, or, or to just manage that, 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 you know, keep Singaporeans at the wage they are low, that's low enough, pay housing prices that's high enough, that keeps them at the uh, state where they are in constant need of not speaking out too much to dis disrupt the system. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I think, um, you know, just specifically on housing prices, I understand Tokyo has managed to increase its, uh, the number of houses or, or um, sort of housing stock by a third over the last 20 years without significant increases in prices through, uh, you know, different policies and, and expansion of, um, um, you know, redevelopment and things like that. So I think there are other models out there. But I just want to say this yeah. is fascinating because, you know, this podcast was supposed to be about just catching up with you and then promoting a book. And then next thing I know, we're talking about comparative economic policies of Singapore and Taiwan, social welfare models, housing models. And it's really fascinating because I don't know anything about Taiwan. And I think a lot of Singaporeans would be very interested uh, you know, we compare ourselves to Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and um, Taiwan just seems to be doing so much better than we are right now. But you brought a lot of nuance into that, to the, yeah, to that conversation. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Roy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your time. I'm so happy to know that you are well, uh, that you've put this past you, that, you know, you're, you're doing um, well in Taiwan. So uh, all the best to you. So thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, and by the way, I do not hate Lee Hsien Long. Because <laughs> many people think I hate him. I don't. I don't. <laughs> but does he, does the government need to go? Yes, it does. Oh! <laughs> yeah. And the book is called Ridiculous, Untold Tales of Singapore. And you can get it at any good bookstore. It's published by Function 8. So do go and get a copy and read it. And it will be a real education about how the Singapore government uses the law to really oppress activists. So thank you very much, Roy, for coming on the show. Thank you to all of you uh, for listening. And as always, remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do join New Narrative as a member at newnarrative.com slash join. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Uh, we're a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia and we need your help to stay independent and sustainable. Okay, so thank you very much, everyone, and see you next time. Bye.